This is the John Oakley Show podcast. On other matters dealing with the rules, uh, interesting because we do have hate legislation in this country, and it was deemed in part that uh, a former mayoral candidate in Mississauga who is uh, being described as a self-styled online media personality has been sued uh, to the point or he's been found uh, guilty of uh, certain crimes that defamed uh, a restaurateur. The owner of Paramount Fine Foods, Kevin J. Johnston, has got to pay out $2.5 million in penalties surrounding this. Uh, but I needed clarification. No better legal expert than our own Joseph Newberger with Newberger and Partners, who's joined us on the line to explain all of these questions attendant to the story. Joseph, always a pleasure. Good afternoon. John, you're too kind. How are you? Very good, but uh, a little bewildered. Uh, in yes. the case of Mr. Johnston, uh, yeah. what was this here? Was it a defamation suit? Was it a hate crime? All of the above? All of the above, and particularly I think the judge has found, and it's a very interesting comment because it is a very fractious time now that we find, and uh, commentary in social media, which is hate-directed, um, can become very insidious. And so um, the judge in this case really focused on the fact that not only was this incredibly uh, defamatory towards this gentleman who owns this restaurant and is very successful in Canada, but it amounted to hate, hate speech. And uh, the judge felt that there needed to be strong condemnation, particularly because of how this can go viral on the Internet and spurn other people to similar action. So uh, particularly interesting judgment with a very serious punch against this type of behavior. Yeah, in the instant that uh, was cited by the judge, well, Primarily, a couple of uh, examples that uh, Mr. Johnston accused the restaurateur, Mr. Fake, uh, of Faki, of being an economic terrorist with backing from the Pakistani spy agency uh, and saying that his staff barred anyone from coming into the restaurant who wasn't a, quote, jihadist, end quote. So uh, because it's defamation, was this a criminal or a civil case? This is a civil case. Um you know, if any of the comments, uh, and it's interesting if there would have been a police investigation, because hate crime, as you know, John, is is definitely something which is a criminal offense, and we don't know if there was any investigation done, but this is purely a civil litigation matter. All right, uh, but you're saying then the police could have investigated as a hate crime uh, specifically? Yeah, because if there are certain statements made, and I think there was a picture altered showing the uh, the gentleman, the plaintiff with his hands with uh, blood on them, if it rises to a level of serious hate speech, which then can uh, put this person at risk and incite other hatred of people of this background, of the Muslim background, it's something they could be charged with. And, and it's something we may see more and more of now as we see such a, a, a you know stark divide in our communities and what goes on in social media. What do you make of the $2.5 million award? Well, that's a lot of money. Uh, you know, in Canada, you know, and, and we don't see these types of awards. We don't see things that are in excess, but this judge, and this may get appealed, I'm, I'm not sure to see if that's out of out of whack, but uh, the judge clearly wanted to make a very strong statement condemning this behavior and felt that a very significant um, uh, imposition of, I guess, general and punitive damages. So one would be for loss of business, damage to, to uh, his reputation, etc., but another would be punitive in nature, particularly because of the hate crime element, which is promoting hatred against uh, an identifiable community, namely the Muslim community. So it's a serious um, uh, judgment. It's a serious amount of money. Um, and uh, we don't have too much precedent that I know of uh, in this range because I think this litigation is, is fairly novel. 
Um, but it's a, it's, it's a very strong statement of condemnation, very strong statement. So it's not a fine per se, it's actually an award, a monetary award. Absolutely correct. And, you know, if he has assets to pay it, they can be seized. If there's bank accounts, uh, the plaintiff now will have to go after that money if he doesn't have it, may be able to claim bankruptcy. So it's different than a fine or something that would be imposed through a criminal court. Again, with Joe Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert on this case that uh, has all kinds of interesting implications, you almost suggested that this was unprecedented in terms of the uh, size of the award. Yeah, I mean, there's not too many, you know, defamation cases of this kind where you're rolling into it, um, you know, a hate crime type of, a hate speech type of uh, element. Um, and what, what we don't know is what is truly the economic loss. So when you litigate for defamation, um, you, what's happening is that you're damaging the person's reputation in the community, and you have to look at what the economic damage is from that. So normally you would be able to point to a loss of business. Um, there would be maybe some expert testimony from an accountant or an actuary assessing what the damages truly are. I don't know what that evidence is because this gentleman has built a very successful business to about 40 stores or restaurants uh, across the uh, the province, and so there may not have been too much of an economic loss, but the uh, the hate side of this uh, and the incredible defamatory nature that's on social media with lots of false statements and claims may simply be, or the majority of the damages which are uh, ordered may be punitive in nature. My understanding is he quantified, uh, this is the plaintiff, they, they quantified his damages at $2 million. Yeah, but again, is that based on a loss of business? Is that a loss on not being able to open up two other restaurants? I'm not sure how that quantification came into place. And you could put into that quantification punitive, a punitive side. But it may be that there was $2 million worth of loss. I just, I'm, I'm not seeing exactly what the calculation is, and, and we haven't read the judgment. Interestingly, there was a co-defendant in this case, but the co-defendant uh, had apologized, uh, produced a video uh, sincerely apologizing. I'm assuming it was sincere because uh, there was no further recourse against him legally, I guess. This went away for his part, but uh, for Mr. Johnston, uh, the reports say he kind of doubled down and continued to uh, press his case against the uh, the plaintiff here, Mr. Fakie. Uh, so how important is an apology to mitigate damages? Any type of mitigation is really important. And if, so there, if there's a public retraction and an apology, which then uh, is out on social media, that goes a long way to uh, mitigating the damages and correcting it. Because in this case, again, part of the litigation was about the damage to the reputation because of repeated and um, widely disseminated false statements. And so if somebody, if one of the defendants steps forward and says, I made false statements, this was wrong, I'm deeply sorry, uh, this should not have an impact on Mr. Fakie's uh, reputation, these were absolute lies on my part, I'm incredibly sorry about it, well then that will go a long way to repairing the damage which was created and reduce the damages. But if it's widely disseminated, we know the nature of the internet, it lives on in perpetuity, how do you expunge the record? You know, that's extremely important comment that you make because... The internet, it can just go on and on and on, and you can maybe hire companies that can try and seek out this um, information which is on the internet and try and bury it, but it never quite disappears. And that's, that's the insidious nature of these statements and comments that are on the internet, because somebody will find them, other people can find them, and then you can be re-promoted. So it's very, very hard, and there should be mechanisms in place coming with some type of regulation that when you have widely disseminated false statements, there's a way to actually purge it from the system. But we don't have that. 
Do you think the $2.5 million reward in this case was a signal sent from the judge, uh, more or less a deterrent signal? Absolutely. And maybe it's not enough. I mean, if we see this against other identifiable groups as well, and we see a rise of anti-Semitism now, you know, any group that's identified through hate speech and and such uh, false statements, there has to be a very strong condemnation. And, you know, frankly, at at some point, I think criminal investigations and and trials that result in convictions. Joe, finally, I've got to ask you an interesting story I was reading about on the weekend. I think it happened in St. Thomas, Ontario, where an individual was found to have in his possession cocaine, but uh, apparently because the cops investigated without a warrant, they were basically going on the say-so of somebody through Crime Stoppers. Uh, The judge, uh, while it was upheld at a couple of levels of court, I guess the highest level, it was thrown out because uh, the judges, or the judge in the case that I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, uh, didn't believe the evidence was solid enough just coming through Crime Stoppers. Uh, can Crime Stoppers yeah. tips be considered solid evidence? No, it's not. That's a very good comment. So yeah, a, a, a tip from Crime Stoppers can initiate an investigation, but the police have a positive obligation to then do other investigation to take other techniques to try and see if the information can be validated or supported in some regard. So the police could conduct surveillance. They could do a check to see if the individual has a criminal record, uh, maybe check bank accounts to see if they're trafficking. You know, there's all sorts of things they can do. But by just simply acting on a Crime Stoppers tip, which is anonymous, and then maybe searching an individual's residence or car is a really big no-no. They need a warrant for that. And they would never, ever get a warrant based upon only a Crime Stoppers tip. And in particular, we still have to be careful in Canada uh, to protect people's rights to privacy, particularly in their homes and their vehicles. Because you can imagine, uh, even if in this case cocaine was found, so the tip in hindsight was accurate, you can imagine how many people may give false tips simply just to harass or get back at an individual because they have some grievance against them. So we have to look at the larger picture and protect the democratic principles in, in cases and ensure that you know the police are acting on solid evidence, which is authorized through an investigation for a judicial authorized type of search where we have a warrant and, and, and they're doing it in an appropriate way. Joseph, thorough as always. Really appreciate it. Uh, great lessons learned today. We'll do Always it soon. a pleasure. You got Take it. Take care. Have a great show as usual. Take Thank care, you. John. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.